one thing is pretty close to being guaranteed, and that is the value of currencies decline over time. And we figure that every 15 years or so, the value of the US dollar gets cut in half, meaning your purchasing power gets cut in half. Not good if you have money in cash, not good if you have money earning a little bit of interest. If we talk about 15, 20 years out, your money will be less than half by that time. So how do you overset that kind of drag, right? How do you do that? Hi, my name is Jason Rasnick, the CEO of Benzinga, and welcome to the Raz Report. As always, before we kick things off, I want to quickly tell you about what Benzinga is. Before I started Benzinga in 2010, there were very few places to get real-time information on financial markets. I thought it was unfair that Wall Street had access to this information before the average Joe investor. So I created Benzinga to level the playing field for you, the retail investor. Benzinga is for the people and by the people. Now, let's dive into the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Raz Report. Slightly different look today. Jason and I will be tag teaming this interview. And this is Aaron Bree. Aaron Bree, Jason Raznick. And today we are joined by Christopher Sai, uh, founder of Sai Capital. Christopher, how are you doing today? I'm great, Aaron. Nice to see you. Jason, nice to see you. And good morning. Yeah, Aaron, don't you have more to say about Christopher? Well, I mean, we're, Christopher has an amazing story. Really needs no, no introduction. Has been investing for years. Christopher, you got started super early. I mean, founded your own thing when you were 22 years old. Uh, invested in a lot of different things from art to big tech companies. You know, you say founded his own thing. Do you think people listening know what his thing is? Well, Christopher, why don't, why don't you tell us what you founded when you were just 22 years old? I mean, to me, I can't even like I can't wrap my head around. Jason met me when I was about 22, and he knew I was in no position to be founding my own. I met him on Twitter. To be founding my own investment firm, um, and you even got started before that, Christopher. I mean, what? Uh, I mean, just being that young, starting your own investment firm. Walk us through that. How'd you get interested in investing so early? I'll give you a little, a little bit of the backstory. So I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. And there was a, um, a restaurant there called Lotus East. And they made the best orange beef. So I loved going to this restaurant. And I also loved looking at companies. I got the first edition, my first edition of Value Line when I was about 11 years old. I would go through the 1700 companies in the Value Line uh, book and was fascinated by all of these different businesses that we could buy. Nobody could say no. Nobody could say like a private company, you can't buy this. I love that uh, democratic approach to investing in public companies. So I would go to this Chinese restaurant and the owner there, Johnny Chang, also liked companies, but he would speculate. He would buy and sell, buy and sell. And I told him that is not the way you're gonna get rich. You gotta think long-term. And eventually I convinced him to give me his entire life savings, which was about 400,000. And eventually- Wait, how, how, old were, how old were you at this I time? I was about 16. So from around- Were you, did you have a good track record then? I had no track record except for- So why would he give you, why would he give you his life savings unless he's more- nearly, nearly half a million dollars to a 16 year old. I can't even get Aaron Bree to give me 50,000. <laughs> I guess I was pretty persuasive. I mean, my track record at the time was not formal. I had managed some small amounts, very small amounts of money that I had earned doing different chores like gardening, working as a uh, as an intern for Waterhouse Securities, which had actually just gone public a little bit before then. Um, Johnny was great. You know, Johnny trusted me, and fortunately, I did well for him. Uh, we did very well. I mean, 
over a several year period, I think I more than tripled his money. So we, you know, it was, it was a great time, but he, he was, he was one of, one of just a few local businessmen that I raised money from. I raised money from uh, other people in, in town. I had roughly five clients at the time. So at the time he gave you're 16 years old, he gives you $400,000 to start investing. What do you do? I mean, are you, are you buying stocks? Are you looking at private companies? What was your kind of your first step of order there? I was buying publicly traded companies. I had no idea how to even think about buying private companies. I mean, I had a very small amount of capital. Publicly traded companies is what I started looking at at 11 and it's what side capital is all about today. As you mentioned, I founded the company when I was 22 years old. Jason, like you, I founded it out of my apartment. So it was, uh, it was a, nice, a nice beginning. I have a lot of great memories working at my, uh, my dining table, ordering takeout food. It was wonderful. And we've been growing ever since with the same investment approach, with the same long-term investment approach focused on high-quality growth companies from that very beginning. So when you say we... Do you, is it like a firm like you and you have multiple people or is we like, what is the we? I'm the only chief investment officer of the company and I have great compliance that I've outsourced. I've got great people that I've uh, outsourced many of the administrative functions to. I've got a wonderful advisory committee that's grown over the years and a wonderful ecosystem of fellow investors that we constantly bounce ideas off of. So, so, so the collective we, it's like you're running the operation. You don't, you've outsourced the administrative and the headache stuff and you focus on the investing. So you basically have made a fund that you run, you manage, and you have outside capital. It's not just your own capital. Correct. We have uh, 110 million or so of assets under management today. The, there's so much that goes on with a regulated entity today. You know, Psy Capital is a SEC registered investment advisor. It's been registered since 2006. So there's a lot that goes on to running that kind of business. And there's probably about a dozen people or so that are working on Psy Capital every single day, some sort of, some sort of element from yeah. administration, compliance, and so forth. But it's all outsourced. And so it's extremely efficient and extremely scalable business model. No, it makes a lot of sense. So the question I ask is, do you have marketers that help you go raise money or is that what you do? Like, are you trying to get this fund to be a billion? And we're going to get into, guys, listeners, we're going to get into stocks. We're, we're going to talk Tesla. You may hear some differing viewpoints there and other interesting companies. But I'm just, I think the hedge fund setup is very interesting here, how he has it set up, side capital, how he's made it so efficient. And, you know, he gets to focus on maybe just one or two things, which is picking the stocks and maybe the marketing of the fund. But that's what I want to get a little more into. So how do you grow a fund or, you know, how does that work? I used to work with uh, Mario Gabelli and he was one of my first bosses. And at the time, also when I was a teenager, he said that asset management has high barriers to growth, but low barriers to entry. And that's still the same case today. So you need a unique story in order to raise capital. You, there's so much great competition out there in so many firms that have done well. But if you have a unique approach, a unique strategy, and you have a story to tell, 
I think that's very effective. And today, most of our clients are actually coming to us. Prospective clients are coming to us or being referred to us by existing clients. So there's a lot less selling, so to speak, on my part today than there was when I was 22, 23. Well, the reason I bring that up, okay, I get approached by financial advisors, or I used to until they know I kind of put a wall up, but I get approached by financial advisors a lot, you know, from Goldman, and I get annoyed that they're just always approaching and marketing and not doing what you're doing, doing the research on the companies. And for you to be really good at your job, you're spending a lot of time doing the research on your companies and you're not marketing all the time. So that's where I was like, okay, you have 110 million. It could probably be 300 million if you were out there like a financial advisor marketing all the time. Is that a, a hard dichotomy to decipher? I think you hit the nail on the head. And my job, my job is to make money for my clients and to help preserve their capital. And in order for me to do a good job at that, I need to be focusing on investing, looking at companies, managing that capital. So that's been my focus. And I'm very careful to make sure that I'm not, I'm not distracted in other areas. What I do like to do is I like to write. We've put out a, a publication called Investing in the Age of Disruption, which was highly well received. And writing that took a lot of time, but it also helped crystallize some of that thought process that goes into the types of businesses that we're investing in, in our approach. Yep. But you're right. I mean, we've, there's a lot more room for growth, but for me, it's really about aligning with that right client, aligning with the client who truly understands our long-term investment approach and that we're not trying to buy and sell. We're looking for growth over the long term. And if you don't have that right client, our strategy is, is not going to work well. We can because you're going to have value to clients if they're aligned with us. So a lot of clients that come to us, prospective clients, I wind up turning down simply because they don't fit within our ecosystem. Because you're going to have those years of down and ups. Is that what you mean by that? You're always going to have years where you're not doing well and you're going to have years that you're doing extremely well that might make you feel somehow invincible in that particular period when you're doing really well you've got to be very focused because you're like a fly on the wall you're going to get swatted and i just have, so, yeah go ahead sorry i, I was oh. just going to say i mean uh i mean you, you mentioned that you have the same you know basically oh. strategy since you you started when you were 16 and focusing on these long-term growth companies i know you were uh, influenced a lot by by Charlie Munger's philosophies. What I, you know, I guess going back then when you were uh, younger, what drew you to those philosophies, and and what did you like about them, and and why you still kind of adhere to them today? Early on, when I started investing and I had some money, I used to have almost nightly conversations with my late father Gerald Sod, and he was a much more um, short-term oriented person, not just in investing, but also in life. And while he did extremely well owning entire companies and holding those companies long-term, when it came to publicly traded companies, he often liked to buy and sell, buy and sell. And I realized from that moment, that was not my approach. It didn't mesh with my personality. And I wasn't good at it. So I learned, Aaron, pretty early on that I wanted to focus on the long term. 
I wanted to focus on growth companies. And Charlie was a huge influence to me as he has been to so many other people. Uh, Charlie really made the point crystal clear that it's far better investing in uh, high quality growth companies at attractive prices as opposed to mediocre businesses at really attractive prices at big, big discounts. You won't always focus on quality. And so quality has been a focus of side capital from a very, for a very long time now. Got it. And then when you're looking at the fundamentals of a company, I mean, even, you know, today, what are your, I, you know, green flags or makes you say, oh, wow, this thing looks really great. I want to keep looking into this. Or what would be your red flags to say, ah, you know, I, I don't really want to touch this. Yeah. I mean, I love that question. And um, talking about my late father, we were out on my Boston Whaler when I was um, I don't know, 11, 12 years old and I was fishing. I was just learning how to fish and I, I cast my rod into the wind and my father said to me, Hey, you can't do that. It's like in investing, you have to position yourself with the wind at your back. So we're all about investing with in businesses that are positioned on the right side of change. Uh, and Jason, uh, you, you, I think had an award, you won a, an award for disrupting financial media. And so I'm, looking at businesses that are disrupting other industries, businesses that are really focused on the right side of change. So we don't own companies like coal businesses, oil and gas companies. We own businesses that are at the forefront of change, that are disrupting, that have innovative technologies and have great abilities to reinvest capital over a long duration. Got it. So is that where, is that maybe one of the genesis of Tesla? Like I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in Tesla. Aaron is not. And so, um, yeah. When did you come to uh, Tesla? I came to Tesla probably too late, uh, but we've still done well with it. We, we purchased Tesla in, in, uh, February, we started purchasing Tesla in February of 2020 at an average price of roughly $41 a share. Uh, today it's obviously much, much higher. I started looking at the company several years before that. One of my mentors, Ron Barron, started buying Tesla way before I did. But I eventually started to understand the business and I eventually started to understand that this was a hugely disruptive business, not just to auto, but to other areas, including software and energy. So Tesla is often a misunderstood company. It's a 800 plus billion dollar market cap that is so misunderstood by, by a lot of Wall Street because Investors are so focused on the company lowering prices, but that's actually an intentional strategy that Elon is replicating, and it's not new. Henry Ford had that strategy in the early days when he launched the Model T, constantly lowering prices to further the competitive economic moat and drive demand, which then results in a kind of a virtuous flywheel. Jeff Bezos has had that approach with Amazon. And Jim Senegal had that approach with Costco. So do you, um, yeah, Costco is all about volume. And so is Amazon. Yeah, for sure. I guess. For sure. Uh, yeah. And then the membership piece, do you drive a Tesla? I don't have one yet because I'm living in Manhattan and I don't have a need for a car, but I am building a country house in upstate New York. And as soon as we make some progress, I'll have a Tesla. Well, have you been in one? I've been in many Teslas. 
You can't own the okay, stock that's what I mean. unless you've actually used the yeah. service. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is factually accurate, but I believe it to be true, that one analyst came up to, um, I think it was Stan Druckenmiller at some point, and said, you know, he, 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 he thinks that Stan should be short Tesla. Stan yep. said, you know, have you been in one? And the analyst said, no. Obviously, that didn't go so well for the analyst, but you got to try out the product, right, or service. How do you decide to buy more shares in a stock? Um, Amazon, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, was at $96 or maybe it was less than that. Now it's approaching 150 How do you decide when to buy more? I bought Amazon more, more Amazon when it went down to 96 and then I didn't buy more and I recently bought more. So, like, how do you look at that? That's a great question. For us, it's always about what we think we can make on that investment from that point in time. So as an investment manager, we have capital coming in all the time. So we have to put new capital to work. So it's always a question of what can we make at that point in time, as opposed to where was the stock in the past? Because ultimately stock prices are driven by that underlying intrinsic value, that business value, mm -hmm. which is ultimately tied back to earnings and cash flow. So if the earnings and the cash flow are growing, and let's say they're growing faster than the stock price, then there might be some value there. And so we're always looking for a relationship between earnings and the stock price. If that makes sense to us at that given point in time, then we'll buy more. So you recently sold some Apple shares, right? Last quarter? We sold a little bit of Apple shares. Uh, it's still in our top five holdings. Uh, we, did, okay. we did that in order to move some capital into some other areas where we thought that uh, we're going to make potentially more money. Why we didn't sell the entire position is because there are no certainties in life except for death and taxes. And so right. we like to have 21 companies. We like to have a diversified portfolio of high quality businesses, but not so diversified that we cannot outperform over time. It's, it's kind of like Kathy Wood does that sometimes where she'll have big positions in like big tech companies and sell some shares, but it's not because she doesn't like the company more. She would just rather hold those shares than have it in cash. Is that, you know, kind of similar? Yeah, I mean, that's I'm so happy you brought that up, Aaron, because we are not market timers and holding lots of cash in is is in effect a form of market timing. So we we tend to run fully invested almost always unless there's something, you know, unless we cannot find quality companies to buy it at reasonable prices, we won't hold cash. And but we will change allocations across the 21 businesses that we own, depending on the environment, depending on what we're seeing, depending on price versus value. So you mentioned the top five holdings right now. I mean, between Tesla, Amazon, Google, Apple, of course, a lot of big tech. Uh, a lot of talk has been about the Magnificent Seven the last year. So, I mean, going into 2024, do you think this this sector will continue to have the wind at its back that these companies continue to move higher in 2024? Or could there be some sort of reckoning for big tech or a pullback in, in that market? Uh, what, are you, what are you expecting? Yeah, I mean, when we think about one year, one year time horizons are actually 
in that short-term camp for us. But what I, what I will say is that the wind is at their back. So we look at the large, some of the large tech companies like Amazon, like Microsoft, like Alphabet that own the public cloud, the three major players of the public cloud. We look at these companies as the infrastructure of the economy today, just like railroads were the infrastructure of the economy during the time of Cornelius Vanderbilt and Rockefeller. So we think that the wind is very much aligned at their backs and world GDP doesn't really continue without that infrastructure today. They're vital to world economies. I'd also, I'd also say there's so much data that sits on premise still on computer servers in offices. We are still at the infancy of move, the movement of that data to the cloud and that should help drive the cloud businesses of these three players. So what about any other picks though that aren't as well known like, like um, other hosting companies and that kind of stuff? Well, that's the great part, Jason. There are only three. There are only three major cloud players. So we, we own all three. It's such a you hard business. Microsoft, Google, Amazon, is that that's what you're it. saying? That's it. They control the cloud infrastructure it's too hard to break into because of the massive amounts of capital that come from, come from forming these businesses that are required to form these businesses. So today, these three players dominate the cloud. What about some security companies? Like, like, like Tesla, I'm trying to find so a picks that like maybe hadn't been as well talked about or you're just like, it doesn't matter that they're, you know, they could be trilling. Like I own Lily. Okay. And I bought it because of um, the Manjaro, you know, the whole weight loss stuff. I bought it even though it didn't work for me and I got six and now maybe I should sell my Lily. But anyway, that company is like at six, six, 700 billion. It's going to be at a trillion dollars. Like I'm like, okay, what's the derivative play? Like, do you ever look at what derivative plays are or like smaller companies that you could have an abnormal return or do you just stick with the leaders and that has served you well? I mean, you've been doing this since you're 16 and, you know, so. Well, I, it, you know, yeah, I mean, you know. I'll, I'll say two things. First of all, the it's the nature of the world for the large to get larger. Right. And the world is structured in a way where inflation drives values higher over time. And I remember when my parents bought their home in, in Greenwich, Connecticut, in the I guess it was the late 60s, or early 70s right before I was born, they paid a million dollars for that, that property, which was an enormous amount at the time. But today, it's many, many, many times that. And I also remember when I first bought, when I first started buying uh, stocks, uh, one of the companies had just crossed the 100 billion or so market value. And people said, how can it get any bigger? Well, today, we're past a trillion and there's no reason in my mind because of compounding, because of inflation, that we don't have $10 trillion market values over time. That being said, we look across market cap spectrums. We're not just focused on large companies. We will look at smaller companies as well. We will look at mid cap companies. Um, so we go where it makes sense at the time. Okay. And we now I want to change companies today. Across, you, across tech, across healthcare, across um, uh, confectionery businesses, we have a whole. Well, I don't know, Aaron. 
Aaron didn't print out your 13F that's on Benzinga. Why didn't you print out his 13F? All his holdings. I already got it memorized. I know the top five off the top of my head. You do? Yeah, it's Tesla's the top one, like 36%. But Jason got, wants to uh, talk about some of the smaller companies. I know. We that's what we're we're, we're on the hunt for some small, you know, for well, small cause cats. We, 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 would we, you would you say I'm an idiot? Because listen, yeah. the yes. end of 2021, I had a little bit of a liquidation event. We sold 55% of Benzinga. And I had like, that was yeah, the Behringer, okay. I believe, right? Yes. Okay. You know your research. So <laughs> you know your stuff. And I, I'll say I've been rather conservative. In the last year, I put more money in the equity market. But if I told you my portfolio allocation, you'll probably think I'm insane. Okay. So I would say that I'm 80% bonds, municipals, 10%. Real estate and like five percent the stock, six percent the stock market or seven percent. I thought I was a little more, and I really looked at this recently. Um, and my if my time horizon, I don't don't need the money. If my time horizon is twenty years. Is that the worst allocation you've ever heard? I'm sure we can do worse. <laughs> okay, but but it's pretty bad. Like in the sense that you, the reason I bring this up to you is because you mentioned your parents' house, you mentioned inflation. Yeah. And here was my logic. I have some made a little bit of money and I was like, okay, if I can get 5% on municipals or 7% do that versus the market falling. And then I'm upset that I lost this. Cause I'm not used to seeing that in the account. And I would see overnight lot and it would just drive me nuts. So I'm like, you know what? I'll buy municipals. And then I see the market going up. So then I put more money in the market and that's been good. But um, I guess what I'm asking you from a time, I'm asking you more of a time horizon. It applies to Aaron. It applies to me. It applies to anyone. Everybody. Plus Aaron's everybody. in his 20s. Yep. What'd you say? Plus yes, exactly. Everybody. And so the market historically goes up, but it's hard in the real, in the, you know, when you're in those years to see that. So what would you say someone in their 20 and 30s a per portfolio allocation should be, or what's yours? I mean, you're probably in your 20 or 30s. <laughs> well, I, it's actually my birthday today, so it's a special happy oh birthday. God. Let's do it. Happy Play the music. <laughs> we got to go. Ready? Yeah. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Christopher. Christopher. How do you go, Christopher or Chris? I don't know. Christopher. Happy, happy, birthday happy birthday to you. That's the best birthday song you're ever gonna get. I know. And Thank but we weren't. Our hands weren't like. I know. I know. Yeah. We got to work on our rhythm a little yeah, bit. Yeah, our rhythm was definitely not what we. Yeah. Okay. Thank, so yes. So go ahead. Um. So your thirtieth birthday. Congratulations. So forty-nine years in. By the way, Christopher, yeah. I wish you could see the clock they put in here to, for us <laughs> to see the time. It is the most faded number in the history of clocks. And Aaron Thomas can't hear me. A, it says we only got a minute left, and I have like oh, four oh, more. Oh, I that, like, that I thought I said three minutes. No, I can't even remember. I have like four more questions it, I want to ask Chris. Right, let's, no, but go let's ahead. Let's so let's tackle this one real quickly then, because I think it's an important one. Besides yes. death and taxes. One thing is pretty close to being guaranteed, and that is the value of currencies decline over time. And we figure that every 15 years or so, the value of the U.S. dollar gets cut in half, meaning your purchasing power gets cut in half. Not good if you have money in cash. Not good if you have money earning a little bit of interest, if, because that money is just not worth very much. And if we talk about 15, 20 years out, your money will be less than half by that time. So how do you overset that kind of drag, right? How do you do that? You invest in quality companies 
that can sell products and services, that can raise prices themselves to offset the effects of inflation. And that's why markets move higher over time, because prices move higher over time and earnings move higher over time. You want to be aligned. Again, we're talking about alignment of where the world is going. This is from a big macro standpoint. You want to be aligned with where the world is going, and that is inflation. Equities are a better way, in my opinion, to offset the effects of inflation than fixed income securities over time. Got it. Well, Generally, Chris, our timer did go off. Do you have a Do you have a hard stop, or do we have do we have, do we have time for three more we questions? Can, we can keep going. You know, this is a birthday treat. By the way, you should look at HubSpot. I mean, it's moved a lot. That's my one of my biggest holdings. I buy it on weakness. I buy it whenever. And the reason I buy it is because competitors of ours and just in the space they keep switching to HubSpot. I told Mark Mark Benioff many years ago, it was at sixty dollars. They they should just buy HubSpot, but. You didn't buy it. It's at five. You're buying everything else. We should we should do more work on it. Psy uh, Capital uses HubSpot. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. It's my biggest. I think it's my I biggest position. I can tell you now. that it's it would be a nightmare for us to switch away from HubSpot. So I mean, it's a very so look, business. We love high switch, business. high switching costs. High switching costs. Look, the moat. I mean, I I I I have six digits in it, like a nice six digit, and I'm upset that I don't have a nice seven digits in it. <laughs> So, Christopher, one of the things I wanted to ask about going back to when we were talking about cloud computing, yeah. I mean, you, or, I, I'm upset I don't have the next nine digits in it because it's up 60%. Yeah. You know, yeah. we'll, 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 we'll build the position. I don't have the nine digits, but I can <laughs> get a loan from Christopher. Jared. Yeah. Oh, oh, Jared. yeah. Who's Jared? Go off. Oh, uh, your, your obsession. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, going back to the cloud computing, you mentioned only three U.S. companies Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Google. World, that are worldwide, too. They, they cover the world. Oh, well, what, so I, the question I was going to ask about Alibaba, because I know, you know, they do a lot of cloud computing in China. That's been a stock I've been looking at and kind of with the Munger philosophy. I know Munger himself bought some Baba and then ended up getting burned on it. But for myself, you know, again, I'm in my 20s. Like I look at Alibaba, I look at its valuation. I think to myself, there's no way in hell that in 20 years, this thing isn't worth, you, you know, 20 times whatever it's trading at now. Do you look at companies like that? Do you not like the risk right now in China? Or why, why is Alibaba not something you'd be, you know, having the portfolio? Yeah, China is an interesting market. In, in the case of cloud, China is an exception because just because of how the laws are structured, Alibaba really has a, a quite dominant position. But these other three cloud players do cover pretty much the rest of the world. In terms of looking at Chinese companies in particular, we have been in the past invested in one or two Chinese companies. We typically prefer companies based here, though, that are multinational, just because we can get the exposure to revenue streams, earning streams from around the world, but we can do it in a way where there's comfort in terms of the accounting, there's transparency, there's rule of law here. So we prefer that, and we would rather sacrifice some return, potential return, for that safety that we believe we have over here. You have to remember, we have to remember, Jason, Aaron, that we're managing money, not just for individuals. We have retirement money, their retirement money. We have corporate money. But we also have charitable money. So it's very important to us that we're thinking not just about the growth of capital, but also that the preservation of that capital. And so China kind of works against that, uh, against some of those goals of ours. Got it. Uh, Will you go to your 
art one about the taxes? Yeah. So the last, you know, last couple of questions, I wanted to get to art. I know you're a big art investor. Art and the tax thing. Yeah. I, I, never, I never heard of that. Where'd you find that? Well, you know, just you, you, you read things sometimes and they stick with you. Uh, I know, Christopher, some wealthy people, not yourself, but other wealthy people may use art investments as a way to, I'm not going to say avoid taxes, but maybe take advantage of some different tax codes and laws. How does that work? I have no idea. Good answer. Really? I don't know, but so Really, I have no idea. I, I will say, though, that um, from what I understand, depending if art is considered your investment versus art being a collectible item there are differences in the way the tax code treats those two forms of uh of, of investment um, but i'm not familiar with the particulars of that we don't buy I mean, the only art to buy and sell it we're really buying art that we love that we think has great value and will appreciate but we have no liquidity issues we our our goal is just to create a collection that we can hold over a very, very long period of time. Oh, so when you say we, you're buying art oh, in the, no, in the no, fund? No, we in this case, I'm saying we as family. Okay, this got it. So you just, your purchase. art investments is just, or your art purchases are just personal collected, not not in the investment. Correct. Got it. Correct. Okay, all right. This, okay, is, now this, this is, by the way, in the background is uh, work by Ai Weiwei, who is a very close yep. friend of mine and, and is in New York right now. You should interview him. Wow. He's an artist? Ai Weiwei is one of the great artists. One of the greatest, we right? Should, we should commission him to do the, a new Benzinga mural. Yeah, I'm sure he'll do that. No, but I have a good friend who, do, who just came back from Art Basel and was and bought two pieces. I wonder if he has any of your guys. Why way? I way. I, I, I got to meet this guy. I don't know. I got to meet him. Okay, by the way, on the art thing, on the taxes, that could be like if your stock account goes up and you borrow on margin versus selling stocks. Maybe that's like, you know, that may be a way borrow against your stocks if your art portfolio goes up to say 20 million dollars and you borrow against that versus having to sell it i mean maybe that's what they're referring to yeah. i don't know I mean, i'll look into it I, I can say that you you can borrow against art many collector collectors investors have done that especially when interest rates were much lower it's gotten harder the banks want diversified portfolios of art as opposed to single artist art concentrations they like large values not small values but if you have a large collection, you have a diversified collection, you can relatively easy, easily borrow against that, use that money for other purposes. And what's interesting about art, unlike public, public equities, is it does not get reset in terms of pricing every single day. So there's much less likelihood of a margin call. It's like borrowing against real estate. There's not an underlying fluctuating value, which could then trigger a margin call. So many collectors, many investors like to utilize some sort of credit line that is not backed by a fluctuating asset class on a daily basis. Okay. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. So you, you can, it's not, you know, it's not re every right. day you have to worry about your loans. Okay. These are the quick, just fire questions. How many unread text, how many unread text messages do you have right now? Zero. About Zero. That okay. I know of what since, since, since we started this conversation. You okay. probably well, got about you, 80 happy You probably birthday. got about 80 happy birthday. Okay. You know, he's right. You're right. You're right. Okay. What what do you like use tech-wise? Do you use a Bloomberg? A fat, like what do you use? Benzinger Pro? What do you use to get your information? Whole range of Nothing? services. Coifin is one of my favorites. K-O-Y-F-I-N. I, I know it. I, I know it. That's funny. I'm friends with the founder. Um, okay. 
Um, you do that for like the charting and comparing the stocks and stuff like that. Fundamental analysis. Got it. Did you ever use um, what was Y charts? I have used it in the past. Yes. I try not to actually look at stock prices very often. It's one of the, for us at least, one of the least important metrics to look at. What we're really looking at is what are those businesses that we own doing? You know, how are they performing? Because ultimately, yep. over time, the stock prices and the businesses are highly correlated. But over a short period of That's... time, there can be dispersion, which is equivalent to noise, and it can be very misleading. Yep. Benzinga Pro is more traders heaven. We have the signals, 52-week alerts, uh, highs, options, you know, cool, dark pools, but that's more of a trader's haven, not a long-term. And, and really, but, uh, really, really useful and almost necessary information for traders. Yeah. Okay. And then the last question was, um, what is the um, best piece of advice that you've received? That's a really great question. Off the top of my head. Or from who and uh, yeah. Yeah, it has to be um, advice that was not directly given to me by yep. somebody alive, but advice that was given to me through his words. Those are the words of the late Fred Rogers. You all know Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers neighborhood. He said there are three ways to ultimate success. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind and the third is to be kind. I think that was great advice. I like it. I like it a lot. That is the look, I'm wearing a red sweater today for like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> you look like yeah. Mr. Rogers. That is the bottom line. I think people get too defensive on the who and not the what. We could talk about Tesla and Eric can give why he doesn't like it and you know, and you could give why you like it. And it doesn't have to become personal. And even building a company, we have a hundred plus people here. The biggest thing that I find is still people too focused on the who and not the what, you know, and that's, and you, if the way to, one of the ways to be kind is separate yourself, focus on a topic versus taking things, you know, that should be, that are personal, that are not personal. So I love that. Be kind, be kind, be kind. And guess what? Rewind and, and, and be divine. Yeah. And that, that will sum up our interview with Christopher Sai. Sci Ventures. If you want more info about it, what is the domain? You didn't even give me the URL for this. Sci. Well, let me pull it up real quick. Sci Ventures. Sci, no, Sci Capital. Sci, so, Ca Sci Ventures is. Uh, is it's www.scicapital.com. T S A I C A P I T A L. Read his writings. We should publish some of your writings on Benzinga. I was just gonna say that you yeah. like. You said you like to write. We can. We can. Yeah. Get and if you're word. worried about anything, we will. We can. You know. Give you a little pen name or something. Give you a little. No, no, no. He, he, no. He's it's, he, he real name. Real name that was that went. Uh, uh, it was very well received. So everybody knows I wrote it. On your website. On our website, it's called Investing in an Age of Disruption. It's on okay. our website. It's in our library section on our website. I highly encourage I your readers, your listeners, to check it out. I feel complete now. I've had Kathy Wood on, Christopher Sai, Tim Draper. The list keeps going. And Aaron Bree, thank you for co-hosting. Christopher Sai, thanks for going longer. Happy birthday. Happy 30th birthday. And what what, what accomplishment. A uh, hundred million plus dollar fund. And, you know. Started when he was 16 years old. I know. That's, I, 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 now what I'm are 49, we doing? so I've got some ways to go. 
Well, yeah. Christopher, thanks again for hopping on the Rads Report. Hope we get to chat again soon in the future. Anytime you got some big news updates, enjoy the rest of your birthday. And thank you again. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Jason, for having me.